Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com. So we just finished um, talking through God's high vision for singleness uh, for the church and for his followers. And research shows that about half of those who are single are looking for a relationship, meaning that they're going to be entering into a season of dating or courtship, whatever you want to call it, uh, heading into marriage. And so we wanted to just take one week just to talk about that specific subject. We talked about it really briefly uh, last week, but we want to just kind of open up that conversation uh, just, to, just to be able to invite what is, well, how does the Bible form our view of something that's very new, right? And the, the term dating was penned for the first time in 1914, so it's only been 100 years since that language has even been around. And so this is going to be both highly biblical, but it's also going to be um, very contextual and pastoral in nature. Uh, and so uh, Jen and I have spent most of our adult life ministering to young adults, many of them who have been in the process of dating. And so we're going to be speaking a little bit from that experience here. But I wanted to share just 10 things to consider when entering into dating or engagement uh, that the Bible speaks to biblical principles, although they might not be given directly to dating, uh, they are biblical principles nonetheless that can be applied into that context. Um, so here, here's the 10 things out the gate. Number one, that you would, uh, as a single person, you'd practice contentment. Number two, uh, that you would cultivate friendship as a starting point. Thirdly, that you would compare uh, mission rather than specific callings. Next is that you invite other voices in to help uh, form that, that stage and that decision. Next, to be prayerfully open-handed about this. Uh, next, to give the gift of restraint uh, within intimacy and sexuality. Next, uh, get premarital counseling if you're getting serious about marrying. Next, uh, seriously consider the covenant you're about to walk into. Uh, last two things, uh, make Christ the foundation of any relationship you have, but specifically one heading towards marriage. Uh, and next, to be motivated by grace rather than legalism. And, and so I want to kind of walk through these 10 things that have been helpful in our conversations, uh, whether it's with young people or people into their adult years who are looking to enter into this. And the first one, that we have to talk about is that within your season of singleness, whether it's something you desire or not, that you would be willing to practice contentment. The Apostle Paul in his letter to the Philippians saying, says, I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. I love that, that verse, I can do all things through him who gives me strength that like has kind of just been abducted by the sports industry uh, that just wants to make uh, kind of what they do uh, a spiritual act. Uh, is The context of it is contentment, that we can do all 
things through him who gives us strength. And that is speaking specifically to whether you are in plenty or in need, whether it's economically. But in this context, I would say even relationally, whether you're in a dating relationship, you want to be in one, you're not in one. Practice contentment and let the God who is powerful give you that ability to step into that. And and I know the question is, uh, contentment works in waves and in seasons, but what happens uh, in kind of long-term singleness? And so I wanted to share with you uh, a blessing that's in Isaiah 56 uh, that's given specifically to eunuchs. And and what we've talked about are are eunuchs are really uh, kind of unique, ancient demographic uh, really of castrated males who were in the service of kings, but ultimately uh, lived single their whole lives into their singleness. And there is this really beautiful verse in Isaiah 56 that talks about a blessing to those people. It says, For this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. To them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And so in an ancient culture where where marriage and procreation and building a family and a tribe was, was literally everything, there is this prophetic verse of a blessing that God is going to give people who live an entire life of singleness. And what's amazing is that this prophetic blessing is actually realized in Acts chapter 8. I don't know if you guys realize this, but this isn't just some wishful thinking. This actually happened. There's a story of the Ethiopian eunuch. In Acts chapter 8, it says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, and go down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out in this way, and he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of the treasury of the Kandake, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and to his way home, he was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. Now, stop right here. The prophecy we just read of a blessing that will come over over someone who lives into their singleness, who's a eunuch, is from the book of Isaiah. And so he's reading this, which by the way, you just couldn't pick up a scroll at the local Jewish bookstore. To have one meant you you were a person of means. It says, the spirit told Philip, go to the chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. He says, do you understand what you're reading, Philip asked? How can I sense unless someone else explains it to me? So he invited Philip to come sit with him. And he begins to start explaining uh, the passage. Um, He's reading out of Isaiah uh, 53 it says, This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shears, silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. They go on, it says, The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about himself or someone else? And Philip began with that passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of me being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. Then they came up to the water. The Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Now, a story in Acts chapter 8 of this Ethiopian eunuch on his way back to the service of the queen. Church history tells us that he is the Christian father 
of the entire Christian movement within Africa. Not, not a married dude, not someone with kids, like similar to kind of the Abrahamic story, but it was a single guy who has led now one of the just richest um, kind of Christian presences within our world today in Africa started with the Ethiopian eunuch. And so this blessing is something that should be anticipated uh, for those who have long-term singleness. All that to say, first point, practice contentment. Live in to contentment. The next thing, if, if you find that, that special someone who makes your heart excited, uh, rather than diving into sort of a romantic context, my next encouragement to you is to actually cultivate friendship. Statistics show that friendship is one of the leading indicators of a healthy marriage. And so there's, and what's sad, uh, specifically because of hookup culture today, we bypass that so quickly into romantic or into physical intimacy without even seeing, do I like to just to be with you? And so uh, I think of Songs of Solomon when he says, I charge you, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. There's this incredible, beautiful, romantic poetry going on. But in the middle of it, the, the bride tells her friends, don't awaken love before it's time. And I think we live in a culture because of how it thinks about romantic relationships and how it idolizes them, that we can really skip this really precious gift of friendship Thirdly, is I would encourage you, if you're, if you're starting to develop this friendship and maybe that's going somewhere, is that you'd be willing to compare mission rather than callings. Let me explain that. Um, a lot of times, specifically within Christian culture, there is this sense of being uh, uh, equally yoked. 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. But it also says later in the gifts, as there are different kinds of gifts, but the same spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of services, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone is the same God at work. So here, here'd be my advice to you. Is in you. As you cultivate friendship and maybe you look towards moving into a romantic state, the important thing is not just diving into compatibility or your Enneagram number, but actually begin to start saying, do you have a common kingdom mission? But that might live out in really unique, distinct callings. I think Jen and I are a great example of this. Um, our, our mission to love Jesus well and love people well is bonding to us. But our callings are incredibly different and incredibly unique. And that shouldn't scare you off. But at the same time, maybe you have similar callings. Like maybe you, you both have similar interests and hobbies. But your mission's different. Um, that would be something that you should be really take that into consideration. That if that's that's what the Bible calls being unequally yoked. The fourth thing I want to just invite you into is this idea of invite other voices in. No matter how much you think that you're thinking clearly, according to leading psychologists, unless you've been with someone for nine months to a year, you're actually not thinking clearly. Your brain, without your knowledge, is giving the, the right kind of chemicals to only see the best in that person and for you to only give that person your best. But if you're with that person long enough, eventually you can't hold that up much longer. And so one of the best things you can do early on in a relationship is invite other voices in, trusted people that to speak into that. 
Um, what are your friends saying? What are your parents saying? What is the body of Christ saying about the relationship? And if you're getting multiple warnings, um, that might be something you want to pray about. doesn't mean that other people get to control your decisions. But Proverbs 15.22 says, Plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors they succeed. Um, and in that process, see how they interact with their family of origin. Luke 6.43 says, No good tree bears bad fruit, no does a bad tree bear good fruit. And I know this is not talking about family of origin contextually, but I think the principle still stands that Jesus refers to a couple of times of look to the tree to be able to see what kind of fruit uh, is going to be coming out. See how they interact with their family. Um, And then also there may come a time where, let's say you're thinking about proposing, and I get this question a lot, do you need to ask the father's permission or the mother's permission? Uh, The Bible doesn't say. It does say in Ephesians 6 to honor your father and mother, that there's a level of honor and respect you need to give. Like I said, that does not mean they get to control, but sometimes the most honoring thing you can do is how you treat them, to be prayerful, to honor the voice of God. And so I would say if you have the privilege of dating someone, this is for guys, you're dating a, a girl who's, whose parents are healthy and love her, it, it's a gift to receive their blessing. You, you don't need to receive their permission per se, but you, would, you desire to receive that blessing and to take the time to do that. Next thing I would encourage you to do is be prayerfully open-handed. Uh, don't overcommit yourself uh, to what you've under-prayed about. And I think sometimes, uh, I think spe- probably even more within kind of Christian subculture than secular subculture, there is this rapidness to wanting to say things and talk about marriage and overcommit yourself. And there's a, there's a saying within business that you don't, um, that you want to underpromise and overdeliver. And I think sometimes in relationships, we overpromise and underdeliver. And so I would just encourage you just to really think through um, how, to, how to be prayerfully open-handed until you're ready to commit your life to this person. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding and all your ways submit to Him and He will make your path straight. Next, and this is a really big one, is that dating is one of the unique seasons. Say, say the person you're dating, you're going to marry. You have a unique season to give them the gift of restraint. Because once you're married, you give them the gift of yourself as an act of selflessness. But in that season, um, leading up to it, is that you want to be able to develop emotional and spiritual um, intimacy without uh, physical union uh, to exceed that. First Thessalonians 4, 3 through 6 says this, It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this manner no one should wrong or take advantage of, and I love this, of a brother or sister. Now, the Bible does not tell you how far is too far, which is kind of the famous question. What the Bible does tell you is don't live into your lust or into your passions, but you should treat the other person like a brother or sister. And it's just a great place to start. Um, are, you, are you thinking of that person that you are with, that you desire? 
Are you treating them like a brother or sister? And as you move closer to marriage, it's a good thing to let that anticipation and expectation continue to grow, but to remember that the Bible has given the covenant of marriage to be the incubator and the place and the arena for sexual intimacy to do it. And I know that's radically different than the culture that we live in, but as always, it's good to critique the culture that we live in, to think critically about it. Um, Sam Amberry says this about hookup culture. It says, hookup culture means that it can be very easy to have sex with someone you've only just met and barely know. It's a huge error to mistake this for true intimacy. Sexual union is designed to express and deepen intimacy within marriage. It cannot in and of itself create it from scratch. Yet we often sense that it was meant to and can easily feel that pursuing sexual closeness will provide the deeper intimacy we're looking for. I think that's just so true. I think a lot of times when we, we live in an overly sexualized culture, largely because of pornography and things like that, that we, we, we are, what we're truly searching for is intimacy. But what we've been given is cheap counterfeits. A um, couple of quick notes here. Uh, if you are struggling with pornography, we live in a culture that has so widely accepted blindly that we have not taken into consideration the, the emotional, psychological, and spiritual damage that it's creating. This week alone, I've been on the phone with three people who are dealing with the, um, the aftermath and really the carnage of living a life into pornography and every single one of them said the same thing like I just thought it wasn't a big deal and it's a massive deal for a few different reasons number one Jesus tells us to flee sexual immorality Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount tells us that if we lust after a woman um, or a woman if you lust after a man it's the same as committing adultery also pornography is one of the leading causes and vehicles for human trafficking and sex trafficking, not only of, of, um, of people who are, are not giving their consent, but of children. And so there needs to be this, this strong sense just to make sure that we are rethinking that. Now, that's not to guilt or to shame you, but rather to invite you into the light, uh, to share with someone about your struggle, whether that's with our peer desire group that meets in our church on Wednesday nights or calling a friend, uh, to be honest about that. Because and it, if we begin to start being honest about what is going on, it's, we begin to start saying, this is all about intimacy. It's all about connection. But because of the fear and the insecurity and the accessibility that's in our life, a lot of times we are exchanging true intimacy for artificial sexuality. And we think that's doing the same and it's doing the exact opposite. And so if we are to live into the gift of the giving of restraint, then we, we need to kind of ask ourselves a few questions. Um, number one, does the Bible have a higher or lower view of sexuality? Is it repressive and is it, um, is it archaic or is it beautiful? Um, and is it life-giving for the flourishing of humanity? Next, you got to ask yourself, does our sexuality connect to our identity? Thirdly, is it dangerous to refrain from sexual fulfillment, specifically for those who are living into long-term or lifelong singleness? And can you experience redemption from healing from sexual trauma? And so I wanted to just, uh, we can't spend the whole time on this, but just, just a few things. Uh, one, there should be a chart on your screen 
uh, that's going to just show you a little bit of the contrasting visions, the predominant cultural vision of sexuality versus the biblical vision of sexuality. One, uh, our culture talks about how sexuality happens within the arena of consent, where the Bible's vision says it happens within the arena of covenant. Our culture would say that it's for transactional self-gratification, and the Bible says it's for transformational self-giving. The culture is going to say that culture reflecting, it's a culture reflecting performance, but the Bible will say it is a trinity reflecting passion. The culture will say it's grounds for fearfulness, but the Bible says it's grounds for faithfulness. 1 Corinthians 6, 12-17 says, says this, Paul's quoting this cultural um, euphemism. He says this, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality before the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with the prostitute? Never. Do you not know that we... That he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body, for it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Um, Caroline Simmons says this, Chastity, or refraining from sex, is a dynamic principle enabling one to use one's sexual power intelligently in the pursuit of human flourishing and happiness. It is about directing and in some cases restraining our erotic energies in ways that contribute to our own flourishing and the flourishing of others. Remembering that the Bible has a very high view of the body, of the identity, of sexuality, which leads to a question that I think a lot of times people are asking within our culture is, is your sexuality attached to your identity? 1 Corinthians, continuing in in chapter 6, verse 18, says something, says, Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. What this verse says is two very profound things. Number one is your sexuality is integral to your identity. This is why sexual sin is such a big deal, because it it deals with your level of personhood and identity. But the Bible also says it is not your primary identity, which our culture would like for it to be. Rather, your primary identity is that you now belong to God, that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. You were bought at a price, and that because our primary identity is within Christ, we need to honor God with that. Cutter Calloway, in his book, Breaking the Marriage Idol, says this, Despite what the modern world would have us believe, we are not radically independent, autonomous sexual agents, but are intimately connected to both God and our fellow human beings. There simply is no such thing as a free-floating and untethered expression of one's sexuality. So if we are to truly flourish as human beings, we must practice a kind of generosity and restraint. I just love that phrase. We must practice a kind of generosity and restraint, a giving of ourselves to the others in ways that shape us to shape people who can receive love 
from others. And so if we're, if we're doing that, if we are practicing restraint, um, I think the, the, one of the kind of cultural narratives that is being thrown is that that's dangerous. That if you don't give in to that urge, that desire, that there's something that's going to happen to you. And I, and I think that's incredibly false, not just from a biblical perspective, but a cultural one. Um, the Washington Post just came out with an article talking about the U.S. adults reported um, no sex in the past year reached an all-time high in 2018. So Americans are having less, um, are having less sex. It says, but among the, among the adults, nearly one in four who spent the year in a celibate state, a much larger than expected number of them were the 20-something men. This portion of Americans, 18 to 29, reported no sex in the past year more than doubled between 2008 and 2018. And the reason I just share that report with you is because if that's true, then our culture, uh, in, in its secular sense, is not living into their own dream. That we are actually, there's being less of this happening. And I think that for us, in, because the Bible is our, is our template, um, Again, the, the, the way this is solved is, is it dangerous not to give in to your sexual urges? I think we have the example of Jesus to, to again, show us a life that was fully lived into human flourishing, um, but never gave in to those urges. And at the same time, something we probably don't think about is that Jesus, being a human being, had those desires. And those were in him, but he chose not to live into them and did not lack an abundance of life. And Philippians 2.5 says that we are to have the same mindset of that of Christ Jesus. Sam Alberry again says this, It is possible to have lots of sex and no real intimacy. But the reverse is also true. It is possible to have a lot of intimacy in life and for none of it to be sexual. And last thing I just want to talk about this idea of restraint. Um, because I know when just even talking about this, there's a lot of trauma, pain, shame around this. And, and can you experience redemption from that? And I just want you to hear me with a resounding yes. This is built within the redemptive fabric of our God is that there's nothing, nothing outside of what he offers um, you through the cross that cannot bring healing and hope to any situation. So I want to read you one verse here. Romans 8, 1 through 4 says this, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Lord who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous equipment um, I'm sorry, righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do, not, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. There is now no condemnation for those in Christ. And if you need help in your healing and in your process of working through uh, what this means, uh, please reach out to your open table leader. Uh, please reach out to a Christian therapist. If you need one of those, reach out to our church. Uh, but the idea is your, what has been done to you um, that has crossed lines sexually, trauma that you carry, shame you carry for things that you've done, was not meant to be a cross that you bear alone, but rather it was something that Jesus took upon the cross. I just encourage you to live into that freedom. 
Uh, let's, move on, let's move on to the next one. Next one is get premarital counseling. So let's say you're in that phase. You're like, I think this is a person I want to get married to. And you get engaged or thinking about getting engaged. Uh, it would be a gift for you. Uh, to be able just to sit down with an older couple, a therapist, a pastor, um, and just have them help you look under the hood. Um, There's so much about marriage that you don't know what you're getting into, but does not mean that you shouldn't at least try. Luke 14, 28, Jesus says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower, won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? Um, and there is a sense of wisdom that would just say, like, you need to understand what you're getting into, which leads to our next point here. Seriously consider what covenant means. Um, a lot of us consider the idea of relationship, the idea of the contract, what this means. But a covenant is something that we hold in such high regard because the Bible tells us to. Matthew 19, 6 says, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And a common thread woven throughout relationships that have been together for longer than five months or 10 years or 20 years or any length of time is a sense of like, we had no idea. We had no idea what life was going to throw at us. We had no idea how we would change uh, we had no idea the sense of loss we would have or the sense of joys we would have. And, and so when you enter into a covenant, you need to consider that with a high regard, that what you're saying yes to is a commitment to them no matter what. And you might be like, well, why? Well, because that is what the kind of commitment that God has given to you. He's given himself to you so that no matter what I am with you and for you. It's the entire story told again and again throughout the scriptures of even with Israel's unfaithfulness, with our unfaithfulness, God's faithfulness to us does not change. And that's how we should enter into marriage, thinking of that covenant. And this last two things I would just encourage you as you consider how to live with intention within dating. Make Christ the foundation. If you remember one thing from this, this should probably be the one is if Jesus is invited into the centerpiece of your relationship, uh, there is hope uh, that is, is beyond imagination. Doesn't mean it's not, doesn't mean that it won't have seasons where it might be hard. But welcoming Christ into the foundation can change everything and should change everything. Matthew 7, 24 says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like the wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. And can I just encourage you, uh, don't wait for marriage to start letting Christ be the center of it. If you're dating someone, pray together. Pray for each other. Uh, attend church together. Start letting Jesus be the center of your relationship. And it's the last thing. I, I know I just gave you nine encouragements of how to live with intention uh, within dating. Uh, but the last one is intentionally the last one because I, I think it encompasses all of them. Is that there is a tendency to think that like if I, okay, if I do these like 10 steps that Benji said, maybe then I'll have a perfect dating relationship which leads to a perfect marriage. I just wanted to say that's not how this works. Um, we don't follow laws that then predict us to have some sort of perfect future. Uh, it's called legalism and religiosity. 
So my last point is this, be motivated by grace. Let the grace of God touch your life, your partner's life. Let the grace of God form your relationship. If you, if you sin, if you don't practice sexual restraint, or if you don't treat each other with kindness, you don't listen to wise counsel, or you've had a broken heart, I mean, all of these things, we just, we just carry them in such a unique way. Let it be covered with God's grace. Remember Romans 2, 4 says, it is God's kindness that is intended to lead you to repentance. Some of you right now are in a pattern of beating yourself up or beating your boyfriend or girlfriend uh, up emotionally, hopefully. Physically, it's another thing you need to ask for help. Uh, But the idea of like just holding each other to the standard rather than being motivated by the kindness of God towards you. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 says this, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. And so I just want to encourage you that if you're entering into a relationship with another human being, you're going to have moments of weakness and so will they. Let Christ's power, let his grace be sufficient for you so that his power would be made perfect in your weakness. So just, again, if you're taking notes, here's the 10 things I would encourage in my kids someday um, when they're 40 years old and they start dating um, or yourself. Number one, practice contentment where you are. Next, cultivate friendship uh, before you dive into romantic interest. Third, compare mission rather than calling. Fourthly, invite other voices in. Next, be prayerfully open-handed with a relationship. You're not married to the person you're dating or even engaged to. Next, give the gift of restraint when it comes to intimacy and sexuality. Next, get premarital counseling. Don't try and go and think that you know everything. Uh, number, number eight, seriously consider what it means to enter into a covenant and don't do it flippantly. Um, number nine, make Christ the foundation of your relationship. And lastly, be motivated by grace. And I, I, I just believe if, if these 10 things were lived into with intention, um, there'd be a lot less heartbreak, not all of it, um, but there would definitely be a lot more honor and glory uh, given to God and wisdom shown. So just some things to consider for those of you who are entering into that phase. Uh, we love you guys. Uh, let me pray for you. Jesus, I ask that um, this, this cultural thing we call dating, um, we recognize there's no Bible verse that really talks to this, but yet the, go- the gospel infects everything. And so, Lord, I pray that we would take the wisdom that you've given throughout Scripture and be able to apply it into this certain cultural context. Um, Lord, I pray for those who have a tend to be legalistic and religious, God, that they would have more grace. God, I pray for those who are just starting to follow Jesus, who have lived into kind of a godless idea of relationships and sexuality, that they would come and, Lord, practice holiness, um, honor you, Lord Jesus. And God, I pray for the relationships that will come, marriages that will come out from the people that are listening to this today. Lord, that you would meet them. Give them wisdom. Lord Jesus, prepare their character. Lord, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com.